Mike once again. Great to see all of you today. Glad to have you with us. And we are uh, in our second week of our live Facebook broadcast as well. We got uh, some wonderful positive feedback from a number of folks who had watched and, and looked last week. So we're glad to be doing that and uh, glad to see all of you in this digital format as well as you who are live and in person with us this morning. You have no doubt heard the old story about the little boy who asked his grandmother, Do you wake up grumpy in the morning? She said, No, I just let him sleep. <laughs> or the story about someone who went to the dentist and he heard a patient in the room next to him, or the little cubicle next to him, kind of grumbling about the fee. Uh, the, the lady said, 200 bucks for one tooth extraction. It's only like one minute's work. The doctor or the dentist quietly replied, Well, I can pull it out slowly if you want. Of course, that story's made up, but there is a true story recorded in Reader's Digest several years ago. A fellow named Arthur Bundridge approached a bank teller in Syracuse, New York. He demanded $20,000. When he got home and he counted his money, he discovered that the teller had shortchanged him. And outraged, he stormed back down to the bank to tell him what he thought. And that's when the cops were waiting for him and he got arrested. The, uh, the, the title of that, uh, that little article was called The Funny Art of Complaining. And as we introduce our thoughts today in the book of Philippians, you obviously know we're going to be dealing with the concept of complaining. Uh, but I want to begin by asking you to turn to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. For the title of our thoughts today, uh, I, have, uh, I have adopted an old-time expression. The old-time expression is, quit your belly aching. I'm going to read here in Exodus chapter 17. We'll be in uh, the book of Philippians chapter 2 in just a moment, but... Exodus chapter 17, and as I say, we'll title our thoughts this morning, Quit Your Belly Aching. Exodus 17, we're going to read the first seven verses. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses, and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, meaning testing and contending because of the contention of the children of Israel because they tempted the Lord saying is the Lord among us 
or not. Most of you remember that the Israelites spent 40 years in the region that we would call the northwest portion of the Arabian Desert, traveling around in circles because of their rebellion against the revealed will of God. They refused to cross over the Jordan River into Canaan because they were afraid and they wouldn't trust God. So God waited, as many of you remember, waited for the entire generation of men, 20 years old and older, to pass away in the desert. And then he began again with a new generation. We often call those 40 years the wilderness wanderings. They weren't actually wandering aimlessly. They were following the leading of the Lord. The presence of the Lord was revealed by the pillar of fire at night and the cloud by day. So, so God was leading them around in circles in the northwest part of the Arabian desert for 40 years because of their rebellion. But God's grace never left them, despite their rebellion, as we learn from reading the history of those events. But the story that we just read here in Exodus 17, that does not occur in the ninth year in the desert, or the 29th year in the desert, or the 39th year in the desert, as you might think. Israel is just a couple of months into their new life as a nation when they complain, and not just grumble. But they complain so bitterly that Moses is wondering if they're going to kill him. He said, Lord, I'm afraid these people are almost ready to stone me. And as we look at their complaints, along with God's response to what he did here, we see some interesting things about ourselves and, and about God. And the first thing that we learn from this passage is simply this, that when we complain, we forget God's past provision. We forget all the many times that God has provided for us. God has directed our circumstances. That was certainly the case for the Israelites. In, in a matter of months, they had witnessed God bring the ten plagues against Egypt. Then the Egyptians loaded them up with gold and silver and jewelry uh, so that they would leave the land. Then God parted the Red Sea to deliver them from Pharaoh and his army, closing it back on the Egyptians to destroy their army and totally end that threat from Egypt for, for, for decades. As we said a moment ago, God led them by a cloud at day and a pillar of fire at night so they would know his presence was with them. A couple of chapters back in Exodus 15, the Bible records that God gave Moses instructions to supernaturally purify a water source for them. Then in chapter 16, as their food supplies ran out, they just, just a few weeks beyond the Red Sea, their food supplies run out, God brought quail into the camp, and He brought manna, began to bring manna down from heaven, miraculously dropping manna from heaven six nights a week, and He did that for the next 40 years. But now, just a few weeks out of Egypt, they complain so bitterly that Moses wondered if they were going to stone Him to death. You see, when we complain, we forget God's past provision. Like us, they were focusing on what they didn't have instead of remembering what God had done. One writer noted, he said, some people are always grumbling because roses have thorns. He said, I'm thankful that thorns have roses. And you know, in North America and Western Europe, we live in the most prosperous culture in the history of the world. 
Even folks who would be called poor by American standards or Canadian standards. We still have, we have food and clothing and shelter and health care and freedom. And our standard of living is higher than anybody in history. Several years ago, the United Nations published some very interesting economic information. We talk about people being rich or poor or whatever, and they said this. I was kind of astounded. They said, if you have $4,000 in assets, you are richer than 40% of the world. When I first read that, I thought, man, I know some teenagers that have $4,000 worth of DVDs. You know, you have $4,000 in assets, you are richer than 40% of the world's population. If you have $60,000 in assets, you are richer than 80% of the world's population. Can you imagine that? In American society, $60,000 isn't much if you own a house or you got a house or some land or whatever. You got $60,000 in assets, you are in the top 20% of the world for economic income and power and money. And yet we are tempted to complain if we can't find our favorite snack at the convenience store. And you know, as we gain more and more stuff, we become more and more discontent. When we complain, as I said, we forget God's past provision. We forget what we have. We forget what God has done. And we moan and groan about the smallest things. A sociologist wrote just, just a few years ago, he said the average modern young person lives in a state of what he calls sullen discontent, continually dissatisfied with things as they are. One of the problems he suggested is a small family in which fewer children are able to demand more of their parents' attention and they don't have to share as much with their brothers and sisters. And then he said you combine that with affluence, a lot of money, and materialism, that situation tends to produce selfish, indulgent children who are never content with what they have. They, they grow up wanting to, wanting everything or thinking that they have to have it right now. They don't want to enter adult society because, they, because then adult society doesn't cater to every whim. They want to postpone the responsibilities of a job and marriage and family and other commitments. When children become adults, they don't, they don't get what they want. Discontentment increases, as does frustration, anger, anxiety, and complaining. Discontent, this person says, also breeds impatience, another defining characteristic of our times. This, these endless causes of impatience and hostility, long lines, interruptions, Talkative people, rude people, high prices, traffic jams, inconsiderate drivers, crying babies. That's fine, they can cry back there, it's alright. Mounting discontent through the years kind of produces this trauma that people call the midlife crisis. You know, the Bible commands believers not to complain. Churches, churches today have more than their share of malcontents and complainers. A lot of people leave a church because their children don't like it or because they're dissatisfied with some minor aspect of leadership or organization or policy. Churches that promote self-esteem and self-fulfillment fuel the fires of discontent and complaining. 
Churches devoted to entertainment and meeting felt needs also create expectations for superficial satisfaction that they cannot meet. So we come here to our little passage in Exodus 17. And the people, having been delivered by God in such an incredible and magnificent way, just weeks before, now they're ready to kill Moses. Why did you bring us out from Egypt? You're going to starve us all to death. You're going to make us all die of thirst. And Moses says, man, these guys are so mad, they're about to kill me. Does God destroy them all? No. He sends Moses down with the elders of Israel, some of the elders of Israel, he said, take your rod and go to this particular rock and strike the rock. And, and he said, water will gush out and it'll be enough for everybody. And of course, this is just a little trickle in a water hose. And remember, there's well over a million people here and all the livestock. This is a river that breaks out from that rock. And Moses calls the place testing and contending because he says the people are tempting God, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Complaining, complaining, complaining. So you see, when we, when we complain, we forget God's provision. Secondly, when we complain, we are tempting God. As Moses said, in the story, the people were quarreling with Moses but he very wisely discerned the true target of their anger when he said to them, Why do you tempt the Lord? In verse 2. You see, they were basically complaining against God. The wilderness time was a test from God to see if the Israelites would learn to depend on Him. God talked about that in the previous chapter in 16, where He said to Moses, I will bring manna down from heaven for you. The people will go out each day and gather enough for that day, and I'm going to test them and see whether they'll follow my instructions. God was putting them to the test in chapter 16, but in their complaining, they decided to put God to the test. And I wonder how many of our complaints are not really directed at our neighbor or at the management of who we work for or our family members or our friends. How many of our complaints are ultimately directed at God? Because the buck does stop there with God. We are, perhaps I think we are putting God to the test. And that, and that wording there, putting them to the test, that is legal in nature, has the idea of bringing a charge or, or, or bringing some kind of lawsuit. So, so the people are taking God and Moses to court for not properly taking care of their needs, in their opinion. And Moses even fears the death penalty as he talks about a possible stoning. And God shows up to face his accusers with the elders of Israel as the witnesses. Unfortunately, it's not the first time the people complained. It won't be the last time. And when you and I complain, we are accusing God of not properly doing his job. As if we were better trained to take care of ourselves than he is. And as if, and as if we know better than God what is best for us. It's like the clay complaining to the potter, why did you make me like this? Or it's like the created thing, griping to the Creator about what He did. And, and God could say to us, as He said to Job in Job 38, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? So turn now to Philippians chapter 2. When we complain, we forget God's past provision. When we complain, we tempt God. 
We're accusing God. We're taking God to court saying, why aren't you doing it my way? Why aren't you doing what I want? Why aren't you providing this on my timetable? Why aren't you doing this the way I think it should be done? Why aren't you taking care of what I think I need? We're putting God to the test. We're taking God to court. We're charging God with something foolish. As is often the case with Paul's instructional letters to churches, he gives a command and then he explains the reasons. I've often said Paul can give you a a boatload of truth with a spoonful of words or a truckload of truth with a spoonful of words and he does that in these verses. We're going to begin to read in verse 14 of chapter 2 is where we left off last week. We're going to read from verse 14 up to verse 18. Paul writes, Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and I, if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. The command here is pretty simple. Paul gives a command and then he explains the reason for it. The command is simple. He basically says, quit your belly aching. Do all things without complaining and disputing. No muttering, no grumbling, no griping about your circumstances. No arguing with God. As Counselor Paul Tripp likes to say, no no activating your inner lawyer to defend yourself and argue your case. Then Paul Tripp usually goes on to say he doesn't have an inner lawyer, he has an inner law firm. Everybody likes to to activate that little inner lawyer in you arguing your case and figuring, why can't it be done this way? Why Why can't it be done my way? And Paul basically says, no complaining, no disputing with God. Let all things be done without complaining and disputing. Now this is when we talk about, uh, when people may be complaining, this is not discussing your situation and looking for God-honoring solutions to the problems. We should all be doing that. When troubles come, you look at your circumstances, you ask God how He wants you to respond to this thing that He has brought into your life. You talk to mature followers of Jesus. You talk with and pray with those who are walking with the Lord. You face the trials of life with submission to the will of God and and a desire to look for solutions that will honor the Lord Jesus. But Paul says, do everything without bellyaching about it. No griping to God with a victim mentality. No thinking that God owes us something. No grumbling about how could God let this happen to me. If you're looking for a biblical example of this, there's none better than Job. Remember all those incredible statements Job made throughout his book? I'll just give you two of them. One of the great phrases in Job when Job said, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's after he'd lost everything. When his wife wanted him to curse God and die, he said, Even if God kills me, I will still trust him. And the scripture records that in all of Job's trials, 
He never sinned with his words or accused God of foolishness. That's an amazing testimony given all the things that Job went through. So Paul writes to the Philippian church, Do all things without complaining or disputing. Why does Paul give this command? We said he gives the command, then he explains the reasons. Well, when we live like this, then there are three things that are going to happen. If we actually can live doing all things without complaining or disputing, when we do that, that there are three things that will happen. The first thing is this. Our growth in Christ is unrestricted. Paul says, do all things without complaining or disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless. You'll become blameless and harmless. Blameless does not mean sinless. That's unachievable in this life. I totally reject the theology, and I know most of you do too, maybe all of you, that is promoted by some, that, that you can reach some stage in life where you do not ever sin. We've spoken about this before, where you may look good on the outside, but sin is also what we think and what we imagine. It includes our attitudes and our perspectives and our values and our motivations. And no honest person could ever say that their perspectives and their values and their motivations are always perfectly aligned with God's 24-7. James wrote in the book of James, in all things, or in many things, he said, we all stumble. James chapter 3. So as we grow in Christ, we can sin less, and we should sin less as we grow in Christ. But we will never be sinless. But blameless, that word means that we are honorable and honest and straightforward and consistent. Accusations from the ungodly can't stick because there isn't any evidence for them. The enemies of the gospel may badmouth you, but there's no evidence for their accusations. Daniel was a great example of that. His enemies searched for something to accuse him of. They couldn't find anything, so they knew they'd have to concoct some scheme regarding his walk with the Lord. He was too consistent. He was too honorable. So the word harmless then means innocent and pure, no ulterior motives, no schemes, no efforts to beat out the other guy with under-the-table deals. You do everything possible to keep your promises, regardless of personal cost. You pay your honest bills, you're harmless in your dealings with others. And Paul says, if we do all things without complaining and, and disputing, we will become blameless and harmless. Our growth in Christ will be unrestricted. There will be nothing that will be damaging uh, to our growth in Christ. Then the second thought is our testimony for Christ will be unhindered. Not only will our growth in Christ be unrestricted, but our testimony for Christ will be unhindered. He said you will be blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That is a great, great phrase. Children of God without fault. Meaning you won't be blamed, you won't be, have a wrecked testimony. Children of God without fault in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we shine as lights in the world. That's a mouthful. Paul says we're going to be unblemished. 
holy children of the Lord living in the middle of, of a warped and distorted world. I looked up some synonyms for the Greek words crooked and perverse. My favorite ones were warped and distorted. That's certainly a picture of our world today, warped and distorted. I decided as I was working on the message that I would not start listing all the various views of the world that are warped and distorted. You can certainly make your own list. <clears throat> and if you even have an elementary understanding of God's Word, you can come up with quite a list of things in this world that are warped and distorted. And Paul says, as followers of Jesus, we are living in the middle of a world that is becoming increasingly hostile to biblical values and increasingly hostile to those who believe biblical values and attempt to live them. But Paul says, you are a light in the world. You see, people who are blind need light. People who are confused need light. People who are lost need light. So Paul says, if we do all things without complaining and disputing, we will become blameless and harmless. Our growth in Christ will be unrestricted. Our testimony for Christ will be unhindered. We're going to shine as lights in the world. I read a story this week at the beginning of the second semester of the school year, a high school principal decided to post his teacher's New Year's resolutions on the bulletin board. As the teachers gathered around the bulletin board, there was a great commotion started. Uh, he could hear out in the hallway, one of the teachers was literally yelling, Why weren't my resolutions posted? She was throwing such a fit about it that the principal ran into his office to see if he had overlooked her resolutions list. Sure enough, he had misplaced them on his desk. So he grabbed the resolution list, was running out to put it onto the bulletin board, see if he could calm things down. And as he was heading toward the bulletin board, he began to read that teacher's resolutions. And he was quite astounded because number one on her list was, don't let little things upset me this year. You were supposed to laugh. Sorry. Thank you. You know, the world is watching. We are so inconsistent. Our testimony for Christ is often hindered because of our complaining, because of our disputing against God, because of what we say and do against the Lord. But if we can live that kind of life, as he said, our, our growth in Christ will be unrestricted, our testimony for Christ will be unhindered, and then thirdly, Paul says, our influence for Christ is, will be unending. Notice in those next verses, verse 16, holding fast or holding forth the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says, I want to rejoice in the day of Christ. The day of Christ he's talking about, it's the return of the Lord. He says, if you hang on, if you persevere, if you keep going, if you don't give up, he said, I will rejoice because all my efforts will have been worth it. And he said, even if I am being poured out for the cause of Christ, it's an Old Testament image there, the drink offering, one of the Old Testament sacrificial offerings, where you poured out something before the Lord, or poured out something on, on top of a sacrifice that was about to be burned. 
That was called the drink offering. And, and Paul says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. God, God is, is pouring me out. I am being sacrificed for the cause of Christ. He said, and even if I'm being poured out for the cause of Christ, he said, that's fine. I'm willing. Be glad and rejoice with me. We're on the same team. We're going the same direction. We're having the same goal. And our influence for Christ just keeps going even after we're gone. Our influence for Christ goes right up to the day of Christ, that final day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. So Paul says, if we do all things without complaining and disputing, if we can, our growth in Christ will be unrestricted. Our testimony for Christ will be unhindered. Our influence for Christ will be unending. Our light will be shining brightly in a warped and distorted world. May God help us to live that way. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for for your word. Thank you for the challenge. It is so easy for us to complain. So easy for us to complain against God. Why would you let this happen to me, Lord? Or why is this going like this? Or why did this happen now? Or why isn't this working out the way I wish? And on and on and on we go. Lord, help us to not dispute against you and bring a charge against you. May we live a life where where our, our testimony moves forward in an unrestricted sort of way and our spiritual growth is not, is not hindered by, by our attitude of complaining and disputing. We know, Lord, as the unbelieving world looks at us, they want to see people who are standing for the Lord Jesus Christ and who are being honorable in their business dealings and who aren't negatively griping and complaining about everything under the sun. Help us, Lord, to hold fast that word of life. Help us to shine the light in this warped and distorted world for the cause of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.